welcome into Power Hour. Wanted to wish you all a happy holiday season. Hopefully the shopping is done and the eggnogs are poured as you are listening to this or you're traveling home. We appreciate you spending a little time with us and uh, the usual reminders before Chris and I get going. Be sure to follow this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a five-star review, leave a question, whatever you'd like to do, we'll answer it on the show. You can also subscribe to the Until Saturday feed on YouTube and leave our pals David and Ari a voicemail for the Sunday Sound Off podcast at 316-462-9852. The Athletics gift subscription deal is still alive, by the way. A one-year gift subscription is just $19.99. Two years for $39.99. You can get that via theathletic.com slash gift sale. And all year round, you can sign up for the Until Saturday newsletter so you can get your fulfill of college football news delivered right into your inbox. All right, I think that's everything. Now it's time for Power Hour. Chris Vanini, Nicole Auerbach, as always. Chris, happy holidays and uh, happy mid-December. It's officially bowl season. Yes, happy bowl season. We've had a handful in the books. We finally got a crazy one, which we'll get into. We've got some more, a lot more this week and next week. And by the way, I don't know if you saw, the ratings for the LA Bowl between UCLA and Boise State, more than well over 2 million viewers. Better, it was right on par with the the Kentucky North Carolina basketball game. Like people love bowl games, that's why they're not going anywhere. Uh, I'm excited to get into a lot more of these. Chris is a very anti the too many bowls people, so we will reinforce that, of course, over the course of this month's shows here on Power Hour. But we've also got a lot of news we want to get into. And some complicated news. Uh, Chris and I have covered a lot of legal disputes and hearings. And so we like to try to make them make sense for you. And we're going to try to do that with some news that came down last Friday. Uh, Chris, why don't you get us started here in the Power Five? We hit on five different news topics. In Power Hour style, we don't really do a minute per topic. So we apologize in advance. But why don't you get us started here? Number one. Oregon State and Washington State have regained control of the Pac-12. That was a decision by the Washington Supreme Court last week to not take up the appeal by Washington and the Pac-12 to look into it. It goes back to the lower court ruling, which gave the two schools control. In addition, a couple couple weeks ago, the the Oregon State and Washington State uh, agreed to a Mountain West non-conference they're all not conference. A scheduling agreement. Those games came out last week. Uh, both Pac-2 schools will play at least three Mountain West games on the road and three at home. They also have some that were previously scheduled on there as well. And uh, so they're pretty set now. Oregon State and Washington State going into next season. What this means for control of the Pac-12, we're not really sure. Uh I don't think Oregon State and Washington State are just going to keep all the money in the conference for themselves. Even the lower court basically said they couldn't do that, although they did block a distribution of revenue last week. So the departing 10 schools are kind of freaking out a little bit. Uh, Don't know what their money situation is going to be this year. But Nicole, what did you make of the latest chapter in this uh, pack two drama? Well, you know, I prefer to call it the two pack, but I... 
thought that this was a huge win for those two schools. This is a big day. I think, you know, in terms of giving people a peek behind the curtain, the two outcomes that we were expecting by the end of that day were that they decided that they would look at this and they would um, look into it and review it or that they would rule with the two schools. I think we were more prepared for them to say that they were going to look into this yeah. um, and, and possibly look into the appeal. I mean, it was something that the 10 schools side and they said immediately that they wanted to appeal. They asked for a stay on the decision because of that. And it felt like things were going to stay in limbo for a little bit longer, but this was a big decision. And it does give those two schools everything that they wanted, which is they wanted to control the assets. They wanted to control the governance. They are two member board. And they say they need all of those things to figure out what their future holds. They are, as you mentioned, figuring out their football schedule and sort of like all of those kind of interim pieces as they figure out if they can rebuild the league. They get a two-year grace period to do that uh, before they have to get back up to the minimum requirements for a conference. So uh, that was a big, big decision. And I think that it's uh, basically the dream scenario that you've envisioned as those two schools and the reasons that they filed that lawsuit in the first place. Yes. And, you know, when this started, Oregon State and Washington State were worried that the 10 schools were going to basically dissolve the league and split everything yes. up for themselves. That kind of started them getting into court. And then the other 10 are worried, hey, they're going to keep all of our money from this year. They kind of went back and forth on that. And so now, look, there are a lot of liabilities that need to be worked out. There are a lot of lawsuits that name the Pac-12 in them. And so it's like, Look, if there's only two teams in the Pac-12, are those two schools going to be responsible for that? That still needs to be worked out. There's likely going to be either a settlement or it goes to trial uh, at this point. So that will need to be worked out. All the other sports, by the way, other than football, still don't have a home for next season. Uh, Nicole, I don't know what the latest is on that, but they still need to find homes for basketball, baseball, all these other sports pretty soon. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it, I think that they're expecting that there will be um, some announcements made there. I know that the uh, lawyers have been involved in figuring all that stuff out. It was really complicated for them to figure out their scheduling arrangement with the Mountain West. I think the West Coast Conference makes the most logical sense for the other sports. Um, and I think you have some questions about you know, do you put everything in there? What happens? Oregon State has a nationally dominant, nationally relevant baseball program. Um, so do they decide to go independent and try to figure out a national schedule that way? So there's still some questions that need to be worked out. But I've been told that those conversations are being had uh, with the West Coast Conference. So that is where, as of we're recording this on Tuesday night, that's where I would expect um, to see them. But we will, you never know until these things are done. Um, and I do think that Oregon State and Washington State would love to get this wrapped up so that those sports and those coaches have some clarity on what they can tell recruits for their schedule next year and, and how it's going to work. And that would include men's and women's basketball, by the way, um, which the WCC just lost BYU. So that was a big hit for them on the basketball front. So We'll see what happens there. Um, and again, apologies on something like this if it happens before you listen uh, to this and this feels a little bit outdated. Um, let's move on to number two. A uh, couple significant opt-outs for Florida State. Trey Benson, the running back, and Jared Verse, their star edge rusher, 
are skipping the Orange Bowl and are off to the NFL. Jared Verse going to be drafted very high. Like he is first really exactly first round pick. I mean, he's exactly what the NFL wants right now. And he's been, you and I both written a lot about Florida state, but he was, he's kind of like the example of the portal working really well. You know, you go in, you identify someone from Albany and they turn into a first round future, first round NFL draft pick. Um, I mentioned all of this just to uh, point out that Florida State is playing in the Orange Bowl. They are, again, not playing in the CFP semifinals, uh, despite what all of their politicians would like and continue to ask for clarity about. And I have a piece up on The Athletic on Wednesday about where Florida State stands right now in the wake of their perceived CFP snub, and also sort of revisiting a lot of the conversations around this program and where they view themselves in college athletics from the summer. And I think that the snub really reinvigorated a lot of that, or at least reminded everyone of how unhappy Florida State was to be locked in with the ACC believing that they're going to fall massively behind their peers and their competitors in the SEC and the Big Ten by the end of the decade. And I was able to catch up with a lot of the stakeholders at Florida State, including their president, their athletic director, uh, members of the board of trustees, about how they feel and looking back on what happened in August. And we know that because of the sunshine laws, you know, those board of trustee meetings were public. We were able to watch them. We saw them say that they might need to leave the ACC, that we had multiple board members saying that that was a possibility. Um, so really, it was it's it's a story examining where they are right now at the crossroads and sort of like in this unique space where they worried about falling behind and being left out. And then they were left out of the CFP. And the immediate reaction from so many people was about how this would impact their feelings about the ACC. Not that that was the reason that this happened. I think the CFP and all of us have been very clear, like they clearly were pinning all of this on the Jordan Travis injury and then kind of working back for it to try to make that enough of a reason to knock them out of the top four, even though they were there, that penultimate rankings. But would this have happened if they were an SEC team? Would this have happened if they were a Big Ten team? Um, so the story kind of explores narratives around leagues and perception um, and also just sort of this idea of falling behind. And anyway, I hope you read it. I think it um, it highlights just the intersection of all of this and where Florida State finds itself right in the middle. Tell you what, it probably didn't help that while Greg Sankey spent all of that Saturday campaigning for the SEC and then Mike Oresco made a statement for SMU and Conference USA made a statement for Liberty that we didn't hear a word from the ACC during that day leading up to the conference uh, championship games and afterward, Jim Phillips was nowhere to be seen publicly at least. And he, Yeah, I, he had the one one statement. He had the statement after the fact. And I, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure behind the scenes, you know, you lobbied the conferences all have these typical things that they send to the committee and stuff like that. But man, like it, it just felt like it would have been such a layup for him to just like get some goodwill 
from Florida State during this tumultuous time to just come out hard, talk about how good Florida State is, bang the drum for them, and then they don't get in. But hey, you tried, you know, and then after the fact, he released a very scathing statement. He did toward the committee. But like at that point, it was too late. Like, I, I don't know. I'm I can't imagine Florida State people were ecstatic about kind of not seeing him. out. Yeah. There. Well, they, they weren't. And that's in the article um, that, you know, I was told that Florida State officials were not happy that he wasn't out there standing on the tables and and banging the drum for them. And, you know, I think it's it's not exactly uh, Jim's personal style and uh, personality to do that. But I do think that, again, narrative is really important in college football. And yes. when Greg Sankey is going on game day and saying like basically the regardless of if Alabama wins or if Georgia wins, the SEC needs to be in the playoff. I think there's a way for the ACC commissioner to go up there and not take anything, not take any shots at Louisville, but say, Hey, if Florida state's undefeated, they have to be in like, there are mm -hmm. ways to do these things uh, and, and to maneuver. Uh, and so, yeah, that was part of it. And then, you know, again, another thing over the course of my reporting was just that we all know that Florida state has engaged lawyers. We know that they have mulled, potential options every you know bunch of schools in the ACC have looked at that grant of rights have lawyers examining it constantly figuring out what options could be and no one has challenged it yet but I do think that the snub and the CFP and the concerns again about falling behind um, I've been told they've accelerated the timeline on potential action if FSU is going to do something uh, this ignited that fear a little bit um, so you know it's it's just an interesting circumstance to continually watch because if someone eventually challenges the ACC grant of rights, that is a destabilizing factor in, in college athletics. Like it's like the like what happened to the Pac-12. It's like Texas and OU to the SEC that got the whole ball rolling on this major round of realignment because as as of now, I mean, none of those ACC schools have been available to the Big Ten or the SEC. Um, they have added reluctantly at the end, <laughs> Stanford, Cal, and SMU. But those schools have been essentially unavailable. So if they became available and there was a price point on it, uh, it would be pretty fascinating. And one last thing, uh, if this was next year and Florida State and Georgia were playing in the playoff, in the 12-team playoff instead of the Orange Bowl, Trey Benson and Jared Verse would probably be playing. So that's another yes. reason yes. I think the 12-team playoff is going to be a good thing because this Orange Bowl is going to be a bunch of players who... Bunch of star players not playing in it. Number three, the head coaching carousel has ended for now, I guess. Uh, Troy hired Notre Dame offensive coordinator Jared Parker to be its head coach, replacing John Sumrall. And that's it. That's the last opening uh, for now. Um, kind of a surprising hire, I think. Parker, he's coached in a lot of different places, but he doesn't have Troy experience, which Troy has typically gone for. Uh, but he takes over one of the best group of five jobs in the country. And uh, so that's what he will have to do there. I say for now with the end, end of the coach carousel because the NFL uh, carousel is going to open up pretty soon here. It already has in a couple of places. Like, Talking to coaches, talking to agents and people in the space, not only has this coach head coaching carousel been kind of low key compared to most years, but the assistant carousel has been as well. And when you, you're going to have a lot of changes in the NFL, not just head coaches, but assistant coaches too. And I think you'll see 
a good number of college coaches, coordinators, position coaches make that move up when the NFL season's over, you know, after portal and signing day and stuff too. So there's always a late surprise. There's always a couple of things you didn't see coming, a coach getting fired you didn't expect late in the process. Does Jim Harbaugh go to the NFL? These are the things to watch. But for now, the head coaching carousel is done. The assistant carousel kind of continues most notably. Penn State hires Tom Allen, former Indiana co- head coach, to be the defensive coordinator. Nicole, uh, you know Tom pretty well. What do you think of that fit? Uh, well, this was a name that I had heard early on because, you know, we talked about this, but Duke took a while to make that hire with Manny Diaz. So, um, you know, there were already some feelers and some conversations, I, I believe, or at least thinking about who who would possibly be that new D.C. Um, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, James Franklin is bringing in a former head coach into the staff. He's He's got change at both coordinators positions. Um, And so you go with someone who's really familiar with the Big Ten and has a ton of experience, including head coaching experience. Um, And I I just think that that makes a lot of sense for the way that James Franklin, James Franklin manages things. You know, he's he's, you know, more of a CEO type head coach. There's a lot of those right now. And so I think bringing in someone with that type of pedigree makes a lot of sense. And Tom Allen's a great guy. And I think that's just always good for culture to have someone like that around. But it it just to me, it just made sense because that was the first name that I heard about that potential position. Yeah. And as for Notre Dame's offensive coordinator spot, uh, our Pete Sampson has indicated that it's likely going to be an outside hire in Penn State. Uh, Notre Dame was kind of prepared for it. Uh, Potential names. LSU offense coordinator Mike Denbrock, former Notre Dame assistant, Toledo head coach Jason Candle, Akron head coach Joe Moorhead. Again, that could get the head coaching carousel moving again. Missouri offense coordinator Kirby Moore, Ole Miss co-offense coordinator Charlie Weiss Jr. Again, familiar with the program. Hmm, yeah, that's uh, a familiar name. Former Duke offense coordinator Kevin Johns uh, and uh, perhaps Notre Dame quarterbacks coach uh, Gino uh, Guidili. Uh, who has been uh, at Cincinnati and a few other places. So we'll see. Uh, We'll see what way Marcus Freeman tries to go, but this is going to be three offensive coordinators in three years for him. That is generally not what you want to see. Now, if someone gets your head coaching job, you can't really do anything about it, but Notre Dame fans were not exactly uh, dispirited to see Jared Parker leave. So uh, this is a big hire for him. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, I think that this is a good time to reset and figure out what Notre Dame wants to do offensively. Uh, We talked a lot about their pass game. They already made a change at receivers coach, and I think that they need to figure out who they want to be in this new era. You're walking into an era of the 12-team playoff, and Notre Dame should have a path to this thing every single year with the schedule that they play, Um, but they need to get the offense right. And um, I think that this is very interesting. The Kevin Johns name is is certainly interesting because obviously Riley Leonard has come over and those two Mm -hmm. worked really well together last year. And and when Riley Leonard was healthy, I also still keep thinking about that, that game against Texas A&M to open the season. So you could possibly have Mike Elko against a former coordinator and his former quarterback. So, uh, yeah, so it's going to be really interesting. I, I am fascinated to see what direction Marcus Freeman goes. It's a big, big hire for him. Uh, let's move into number four. So let's go back into the the legal, the legalese. The fun Another, stuff. 
like, yes, this is why we all got into uh, to working in sports, of course. Um, so this also, the final stage of it essentially broke on Friday as well. So a couple days old, um, but we do have a lot more clarity on it as we talk about it. Um, the NCAA will now have to allow players who transferred multiple times and would otherwise be eligible, but are required to sit. Maybe they applied for a waiver and it was denied or they didn't apply because they expected that they'd have to sit. They are going to be eligible. So this is a huge decision for basketball players. And this is because a bunch of attorneys generals combined their efforts and took on this specific rule. There was a judge who ruled uh, a temporary restraining order in in favor of the athletes and ruled that they multi-time transfers should be eligible to play immediately last week. There was a period of time where we didn't know exactly how that would impact some of the other NCAA rules. Um, It was clear that it wasn't going to punish a team like they wouldn't have to vacate the games afterwards if the ruling were reversed. But the NCAA did rule that those players, it would count as a year of eligibility if they played because that's how it works in basketball. You don't get a certain amount of games like you do in football. The second you play, it's burned. So everyone was really nervous about that. Very cautious. We saw UNLV played a player who was suddenly eligible, but other schools were holding back and waiting to see how that was going to be ruled. And the NCAA ended up working with the attorney general to clarify that those athletes will be able to play the rest of the season. It is now a preliminary injunction. They, they basically changed the TRO into a preliminary injunction that will run through the winter season. So this is a big ruling for basketball and a ton of basketball, two-time transfers, three-time transfers. And Chris, I think it's led, it's led me to think about the idea that others might challenge more individual rules that the NCAA has, um, particularly around player movement or anything that would restrict players ability to do things, but also maybe that the multiple time transfer, uh, all the different ways to block somebody from using it might eventually have to go away. I mean, this was something they looked at last year when they were after they started doing the one time transfer was shouldn't we just open it up for everyone? Like, why would we do this? Why would we still have a waiver process? Because the whole point of changing the rule was to, you know, just for exceptions. But now everyone's applying for it. They decided not to do that for roster management and sanity reasons. But if this is going to be challenged in court and and going to be an issue, the NCAA may end up having to change this rule and just allow anyone to transfer and be immediately eligible at any point. Right. This this is literal free agency every single year. Like yes. this is the thing Without that you contracts hear. like at all. Right. So like it, it's a very weird path that we got here cuz remember like it wasn't even that long ago that coaches could prevent players from transferring to certain schools and they would have to sit out anyway. You know, there and there would have to be public pressure on a coach. It was Bo Ryan in the Wisconsin basketball one. Uh, Bill Snyder had one. I remember at Kansas State. Like there were a lot of these high-profile situations, and so eventually, the NCAA was getting hit with so many waivers to let somebody play right away, you know, sick family member, what have you, that they said, "All right, we're going to allow the one-time transfer. Everybody can get one move for free. You don't have to sit out a year, and that and that's it." And so that was like, that was a 
pro-player decision by the NCAA to do that. And the first couple of years, you see a lot of guys moving, but also moving multiple times and applying for waivers to get those. And so then you have the coaches saying, hey, this is free agency every single year. Why is there a quarterback who has played at four different schools in four years? And so the schools were like, hey, NCAA, we need you to crack down on this. So the NCAA says, okay, we're going to crack down on this. You get one. We're going to hold you to the rule that we pass. The Tez Walker situation happens at North Carolina. A lot of other situations happen. And suddenly you've got fan bases, schools that are furious at the NCAA for enforcing the rule that they asked the NCAA to enforce. And you get politicians and attorney generals who realize, hey, this is a political points layup for me. I'm going to start threatening the NCAA over this kind of stuff. And so you have several of them come together and say, hey, this one-time transfer rule is uh, not allowed. And now currently we have free agency every year. So basically because they complained about it, cracked down on it, now it broke open. And so I don't know what's going to happen. You know, at the end of this, it's going to take a while to kind of go through the process and all that type of stuff. But like, we could get to a football season next year where everybody can transfer every single year. And and you're seeing more and more state legislatures, state officials jumping in on this stuff, realizing they can make a change, realizing they can get uh, their voters something that they want because they're sports fans. And this is the future of college sports right now, unless basically the NCAA gets that uh, congressional antitrust exemption it wants, uh, or they just completely upend the system and decide to make, players, employees, they gave them contracts and all this kind of stuff. So we're, we're in this weird middle ground right now where everything's kind of fallen by the wayside. And I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon. Right. The, one of the ways to fix this is contracts and unions that can negotiate rules around player movement like that. So that's one way. Congress is another way, but we are in this weird gray area and that's where we remain. But Good news for those basketball players who wanted to play this year, are academically eligible, are able to. Um, and no, you can't transfer at the semester break and play at another school. You, you're still not allowed to do that. You're not allowed you to play, play for yeah. two different teams in the same competitive season. So those Correct. rules still apply, um, but certainly a, a big win for players' rights advocates and the individual players themselves, including some prominent players in the states uh, of Ohio and West Virginia, whose attorneys general got involved. Number five, signing day is here. If you're listening to this Wednesday, uh, this used to be called the early signing period. I think we all just call it signing day now because that's when most of the kids sign. And there have been a couple notable changes, at least as of Tuesday night. When we're recording this, Stars Matter will have a bunch of recruiting coverage on National Sounding Day, a live stream Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern on the Until Saturday YouTube channel. So make sure you're checking that out uh, for a recap of everything that happened on Signing Day. But Nicole, the big one, someone we talked about last week because it was leaning that way, Dylan Riola, one of the top recruits in the country, announced his move or is changing his commitment from Georgia to Nebraska, and he did it with a poem. And this also came on the same day that Carson Beck, starting quarterback at Georgia, announced he would return for his senior year. Dylan Riola coming home again, another home, to Nebraska. Uh, Ari wrote a column about how this is good for college football, that someone else has this. I, I think, like, of the top, like, 15 
players in the 24 seven sports player rankings are going to like 10 or 11 or 12 different schools. What do you make of Dylan Riola in Nebraska? So the poem was an interesting touch. He refers to himself in third person, calls himself a hero, took shots at Georgia. <laughs> um, so there was a lot going on. I don't recall the last time we had a commitment poem, but I appreciate the creativity. Um, I do think it is generally good for college football to have talent all over the place to disperse it. I am fascinated to see how this looks and how this works at Nebraska. Um, you know, you and I are both fans of Matt Rule. We were excited for him to come back to college. Saw a lot of growth in year one, particularly defensively. The quarterback position was a weak spot. So many turnovers, such inconsistent play, cost them games. And you go out and make a huge, huge splash. But this is a player who transferred a bunch of times in high school and changed his commitment multiple times before deciding on Nebraska. Um, so, you know, we don't know if it's going to work out. We don't know if he's going to graduate from Nebraska or if he transfers or whatever. But fascinating circumstance and definitely a big deal for Matt Rule and the staff. You know, we know how he builds relationships. We know how hard he recruits and how much he enjoys that piece. Part of the reason he's a better college coach than he was in the NFL. And this is going to be a very interesting experiment in the new Big Ten as well, by the way, because next year all the four newcomers from the West Coast join. So that becomes harder to take that next step as well when you're in Nebraska and when you're some of those schools that are not in that upper echelon. So fascinated by this. And, you know, Grace, our, our colleagues, Grace Rayner and Seth Emerson also had a piece about Georgia and in-state talent. And I know Rayola yeah. like moved there. It's not like th there's different examples of, of players who were actually like, kind of like homegrown going elsewhere. And so I just recommend people read that as well, just about Georgia's recruiting because there was a lot of mixed reaction of like, I mean, it's fine anyway, right? Like they're they're still getting great players. They they still have quarterbacks coming. And Carson they have the Beck number is one. Back. They have the number one class for for right. at so, the moment. Right. So does it matter? Does it not matter? How do you make of all of this, especially when you're recruiting nationally at such a high level? So anyway, I recommend that piece. It was really interesting in light of yeah. uh, Rayola's flip. They have current of the top nine players in the state of Georgia per 24-7 sports. None of them are committed to Georgia. So maybe that's just a weird, quirky thing because they, again, still have the number one class. I, I am, I'm a little leery of the Dylan Ryle stuff. I don't want to call them red flags exactly, but just something I'm going to kind of keep an eye on because you mentioned he transferred in high school and he had multiple commitments. He didn't just transfer and move. He, he was at four different high schools. He committed to three different colleges or at least two or three different colleges. This is not a guy who has stuck with his decisions very long. And again, when you sign a top 50 quarterback, the odds of them transferring are like greater than 50%. And, and, and we've just seen that time after time, like, so he's going to have to come in and perhaps like win the job or perhaps he makes a decision to leave. I, I, I don't know. I don't know the inner dynamics of what's going on in Nebraska, but with quarterbacks, especially the odds of them staying at a school for, throughout their career are not great. So we'll see. 
If Dylan Rola sticks with Nebraska, he's got an uncle on the staff. So it's, it's a little bit of a different situation. So we'll see. Uh, also notable, it, uh, coming into signing day, is Billy Napier going to keep this together? They lost safety Xavier Filsimi from uh, to Texas. It's a class that was ranked in the top five at one point. I think top three, maybe. It's currently, as of Tuesday night, down to number 10. I think they're going to hold on to quarterback DJ Lagway. We'll see. That is a big storyline to watch on signing day as well. And somewhat notably, not exactly signing day, but Texas a wide receiver Evan Stewart is now in the portal as of Tuesday night, former five-star recruit from the 2022 class, freshman All-American. And that means five of the eight. So, Nebraska, by the way, Texas A&M's 2022 class, the highest rated recruiting class of all time. They have now seen five of those eight five-star players have either left or are currently in the portal. That is staggering. And it is a reminder that just because you sign a good class, a good player, a good quarterback does not mean they're going to be great, does not mean they're gonna, you're going to hold on to them. I have almost, I've never been less interested in a recruiting class, in rankings, in any of that stuff, because the odds of those players sticking around for four years has never been lower. So it, it, look, it's better to sign a top 10 class than not, but it ain't the end of the world if you don't. Because Michigan hasn't been doing it. They're in the playoff. TCU hadn't been doing it. They played for the national championship. We got a 12-team playoff coming. That's my take on uh, on signing day. Well, and also uh, the reason that these things are connected is because the portal's open while you have the December signing period. The portal yes. decisions and availability impact these as well. So you can always address weaknesses or misses if you've evaluated, missed on an evaluation later on through the portal, possibly. Also, fun reminder is one of the wildest stories that we've covered in recent years was that that was the class that prompted Saban going after Jimbo Fisher, which then prompted Jimbo Fisher going back at Nick Saban. So I do appreciate the content that that class gave us. And That's wild. He signs that top class, the highest class ever. And within two years, Jimbo's been fired and half of those top players are in the portal. Every single number one recruited class uh, in the modern era, at least in the last decade, has won a national championship. Does not seem likely for Texas A&M. It does not. And again, there's a lot of warning signs, I think, about that when you think about the NIL era. Um, players that prioritize things or chemistry and how you fit together a class, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, that's for another day. Let's move over into our happy hour segment. Uh, there's a couple topics we want to hit on, but mostly Chris, you are in a great mood. We are, there are not enough bowls, really. You would be watching a bowl game right now. If you could, you love this time of year where we can watch Two teams play on a Monday afternoon and that the winning team will throw pieces of toast in the air and make toast angels on the ground, which I love so much. Any food sponsor for a bowl game, just make your food available. I'm still I'm looking at you, the avocados from Mexico, Cure Bowl. The fact that there wasn't a guac bath for the head coach, it was raining already, would have been more liquidy. Guac angels. There were so many options. Anything that is edible needs to be involved. But anyway, Chris, I digress. 
you loved, you loved the famous toastery. Did I say it right? Toastery? Is it a toastery? Yes. Toastery Bowl. The former Bahamas Bowl, now in Charlotte this year. It, it made you happy. Tell us why. First off, I didn't know what famous toastery was. Uh, our old friend, our old friend Andy Staples had to inform me it's a breakfast brunch place, uh, mostly in North Carolina, I believe, which is uh, where the bowl was. So, look, now I know what it is. I had this game on while I was doing some work, and it's like 28 to nothing and because of a bunch of turnovers. The third-string quarterback is in, and I was just like, oh, bowl games haven't been that great so far this year. And then Western Kentucky proceeds to come back and win this game in overtime. It was crazy. So they're down 28 to nothing. They've they committed five turnovers in the game. They were down to their third string quarterback who comes in. Star receiver Malachi Corley barely played, and they start inching their way back. They block a field goal late in regulation while they're trailing by seven. They drive down the field, score the tying touchdown on fourth and long. In overtime, they block a field goal. They kick their own field goal to win in overtime. Caden, Caden Veltkamp, quarterback, third string quarterback for Western Kentucky. He had thrown six passes in his entire career to that point. He's in the portal. He uh, like a few weeks ago, like, uh, like he had announced he was going into the portal. He goes 40 for 52, 383 yards, five touchdowns to come back and win the game. I don't know what his future is, if he's staying at Western Kentucky or not, but this is everything we love about bowl games. Players we've never heard of, playing on teams you've barely watched, making you care about a brunch place that you've never heard about before. That is the joy of bowl games. You mentioned the Toast Angels. Famous Toastery was there with a bunch of toast. I don't know how crunchy the toast was. It looked pretty I, soft. I, 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 don't I, know hope, if- I hope it came right out of a toaster oven. I mean, that's I mean, I, how I, I some of it, it looked pretty thick. It might have been some French toast in there as well. Ooh. Western Kentucky players are like holding a like a handful of several pieces of toast love. in there, and it was wonderful. It was everything I love about college football. These are the games that some people think we shouldn't be playing, and don't listen to them. This is this is the fun of college football. These are also the games that people like us who follow these teams and pretend that we know things about the sport always get wrong, right? Because you're trying to figure out who might play, who's motivated, whose backup quarterback might be better. And like you mentioned the LA Bowl earlier. Boise State would have been my pick. I would have put a lot of confidence points on them, right? Well, the way they finished should, the you season. Should, you, shouldn't have, you shouldn't have done that, by the way. I I, I picked UCLA. You, boy, this is a, by the way, bowl games this year are impossible to predict. Impossible. But that's what I'm saying. Boise I'm saying, State, even when Boise you State think played you know third-string quarterback. I know, but you look at the way they finish the season, who's more motivated, right? You think about these things because they do matter. UCLA, the quarterback of the present and the future. Yeah. Yeah. Ohio beat Georgia Southern with all of its skilled players in the portal. They weren't in the game. Right. And they beat Georgia Southern. (laughs) Right. So crazy. that's also, we're in that phase of bowl season where nobody knows anything. And it is pretty joyous because you are immediately surprised the second that you turn something on. Uh, Another point that I wanted to make, something that made me happy this week, we are finally starting to see the winners of various National Coach of the Year awards. I love this award. I still think it's hilarious. There are preseason watch lists for this because so much of the award actually just goes to teams that overachieve. So this one went to Kalen DeBoer at Washington. 
And it is so fitting. I just thought he did a phenomenal job this season. He's done a great job everywhere he's been the head coach. We love his career path and where it started. Two years at Washington and what they have is sustainable. It's not going anywhere. It's going to survive past Michael Penix's career. They were so resilient. They never got counted. They never counted themselves out of any games. They established a run game. They made great plays. They have they have a ton of NFL talent on that roster, especially in the receiving room. Um, the defense was tougher than people thought and more physical than people gave them credit for. But it was just such a I enjoyed this team so much and what they did this season. I enjoyed watching them. And I always love listening to Kalen DeBoer talk about this team and how it was very easy to see why the players want to play for him and how he would win over recruits and how he built this thing to where it is in just year two. And it's just a well-deserved honor. Uh, it's, it's hard to win these types of awards. And there are a ton of finalists, including Mike Norvell at Florida State, who absolutely would also deserve it. But I just think it's 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 really fitting and uh, just a credit to to what Kalen DeBoer did. Fantastic job this season. And the job's not done. Obviously, they they want to go out and win a national championship. Yeah, this was um I don't think I've uh, I guess I have a couple I don't think we thoughts. vote in this one cuz we're not a No, I think we get to vote in the Eddie Robinson coach of the year we one. We get I that think. one and then there's another one that we can vote we in. We get a few. It this year was tough, man. Like Jerry Kill taking New Mexico State to 10 wins, beat Auburn back-to-back bowl games for the first time in 60 years. Jamie Chadwell takes Liberty undefeated in his first year. Rhett Lashley and SMU win a conference championship for the first time in 40 years. Mike Norvell, as you said. Uh, Eli Drinkwitz, Mizzou. Eli Drinkwitz at Mizzou. But I think ultimately you look at Kalen DeBoer, they go undefeated in easily the toughest conference in college football. You beat Oregon twice. Very, very much deserving of that award. Congrats to him. And we'll see how they do in the playoff. I think you have one more happy hour topic that you wanted to get into or that I would like uh, to hear yeah. you talk about because some... you wrote a great story about this person. Yeah. So we talked last week about Matt Entz leaving the North Dakota state head coaching job. Um, they hired a new coach uh, a couple days ago, Tim Polisek. He was the offense coordinator at Wyoming. He's a former uh, North Dakota state assistant for about 10 years over multiple stints. And I did a story about him uh, when he was, he had, he was back at Wyoming. He had coached at Iowa for a year. This is early 2020 when the pandemic happens and you and I, and nobody knows what the heck we should write about because there's nothing going on. And we get assigned to do a series of stories. And they asked us to ask coaches, what was their first job? Like just like first, like notable job, like non-coaching job, something like that. I don't remember how I found this out, but I knew that Tim Polisek had worked as a lumberjack while he was a volunteer assistant at Division Three Wisconsin Stevens Point. So he's working. He's working as a, as a lumberjack. Gets a call from Craig Bull, the head coach of North Dakota State, because Polisek had applied for a, basically a, a graduate assistant job at NDSU. Gets the call while he's sitting in his truck. It's 15 degrees out. He just was out cutting down some trees and Craig Bowles confused. He's like, wait, why are you a, a lumberjack? I thought you were a football coach. He has to explain. He's like, yeah, I'm a volunteer assistant at, at, at division three school, man. Like I'm just trying to, trying to make some money to, to, to keep my dream of coaching alive. 
he needs to go to Fargo to interview. He doesn't have the money to drive out there. So he sells his golf clubs to his high school superintendent to get the gas money to drive there to do the interview. He gets the job. He sleeps in the basement of the Fargo Dome upon getting there, ends up rising up through the ranks, coming back as offense coordinator, going on to Iowa, uh, Wyoming, having a good stint there. And now he's back as head coach. And I just think that's really cool. There are not many coaches out there who have grinded like that, cutting down trees in the Midwest, working as a lumberjack. So shout out Tim Polisek for getting that job. Uh, North Dakota State definitely went to hire one of their own as they look to uh, kind of rebuild, not rebuild, but kind of get back to where that program is because they lost in the semifinals. Oh, I know. Yeah, got to rebuild. Got to get uh, back. Montana. Got to rebuild. Well, I mean, look, they've lost seven games the last two years. That is not what they're used to. I am... I agree. I'm just underscoring how ridiculous that sounds. Their standard is so high that they play for national championships every single year. Uh, Fantastic story. And uh, thank you for sharing it. It is a great reminder um, of all the different levels in college football and how much these things, these types of jobs mean to people. Um, Those were all very happy topics. We would love to end the show there, but we never do because there's always friction and frustrations and angst somewhere else, and we are going to discuss it. It's time to go on the rocks. This is the part of the show where we uh, break down something where there is tension and a circumstance or dynamic. Uh, And a lot of times we go big picture about kind of the state of college sports, and I think our topic today certainly leans into that. Chip Kelly, the UCLA head coach, has been – speaking very candidly about what he sees as problems about the collegiate model right now and how he would fix it. Um, And you know what? He can explain it better than I can. So here is the sound of Chip Kelly's comments. The biggest issue that you might have right now, whether it be realignment, NIL, transfer portal. I think they're all a problem, and I think we need to have a conference commissioner. I think football should be separate from the other sports. Our softball team should be playing Arizona in softball. Our basketball team should be playing Arizona in basketball. But because football left, and they say, well, how do you do that? Well, Notre Dame's independent in football, and they're in a conference and everything else. I think we should all be independent in football. And you can have a 64-team conference that's in the Power Five, and you can have a 64-team conference in the Group of Five, and we separate it, and we play each other. You can have the West Coast teams, and then every year we play seven games against the West Coast teams, and then we play the East. So we play Syracuse, Boston College, Pitt, West Virginia, Virginia. Then the next year you play against the South while you still play your seven teams. You can play a seven-game schedule. You can play four against another conference, another division opponent, and you can always play against one Mountain West team every year so that we can still keep those rivalries going. And so there's 132 teams, and we all share in the same ter- we all share the same TV contract so that the Mountain West doesn't have one and the Sun Belt doesn't have another and SEC has one and they have another. That's a lot of games, and there's a lot of people in the TV world that would go through it. So that is Chip Kelly speaking to reporters um, over the weekend, or maybe Friday it was. Yeah, ahead, um, ahead of the ahead of the LA Bowl, yeah. Ahead of the LA Bowl, and it was it, it went around pretty viral over the weekend, and I, I think a couple people focused on parts that we've heard before, like the idea of a commissioner. We, we have heard many coaches bring that up. The part that I thought was most interesting. And I know you do too, because we've talked about this. Is the idea of pooling rights and doing what the NFL has done, which would take a ton of 
collaboration and coordination that does not exist. It would require conference commissioners to give up power. And same with the idea of a commissioner uh, who oversees the whole sport. The individual commissioners of conferences uh, would have to give up power to create some sort of czar type position or some governing body centralized power that they don't seem to want to do. But the the idea of sharing rights is a fascinating one. You'd obviously have to um, figure out a way to do that. They all end at different times. But that is how the NFL became so powerful and was able to make so much money by by pooling them all together and making people bid on them. Otherwise, you can't get anything. You know, you couldn't go for lower tiers. You couldn't pick individual packages uh, because it was all being sold together. So then they could set the prices or they could create bidding wars because it made the inventory so valuable. So I thought that was really interesting, as well as the idea of eventually moving back towards a regional structure, which so many people in college sports would love to see happen eventually. And I, I do think, Chris, that that's one of the ideas when people talk about super conferences or like the AFC versus the NFC, there is an idea there that, oh, well, maybe eventually you'll have divisions within those things that kind of make a lot of sense. And it looks like the Pac-12 used to look or like those regional rivalries eventually come back. So I feel like the reason that this these comments from Chip Kelly circulated so much was because it hit on a lot of those frustrations that fans have about losing rivalries, about not having geography matter. Um, and just the idea that everyone should be working together instead of working against each other and rating each other's conferences and competing against each other. I'm not saying Chip Kelly hasn't done this, but like, dude, look at your own school for that. You guys, you guys are the ones choosing to leave the Big Ten, leaving the Pac-12 for the for the uh, Big Ten. And I'm not saying Chip Kelly wanted to do that. I'm, perhaps he expressed that to his athletic director. I don't know, but I'm just kind of annoyed by people at these schools that are the ones that are saying this. Look, he said some things that make a lot of sense. Uh, pooling the TV money with players. Jim Harbaugh has said that. Other coaches have said that. You'd have to figure out some sort of workaround in terms of employment. But had college football should have done that a long time ago. Had it done that a long time ago, we may not have these situations where you've got state governments uh, inflicting everything they can on college sports. It's because college sports refused to do stuff like that for so long that now change is being forced upon them. So he's right about that. Stuff like splitting apart and doing our own TV deal. I don't know if that's going to pass the courts. Probably not. You're probably going to get an antitrust thing there because you mentioned the NFL does that. The NFL had had to get an antitrust exemption to do that. That is how the Sports Broadcasting Act of 1961 came together, which protected Saturday for college football and Friday for high school football. That was in exchange for an antitrust exemption that the NFL got in order to do that. So that would be its own challenge. So, you know, you and I sometimes come across as party poopers because we say these simple things that people want to happen is not simple and probably can't happen. But that's like the reality. The Big Ten just signed a new TV deal. The SEC just signed a new TV deal. They're not teaming up anytime soon because we've got many, many years to get through these deals that these conferences just signed because the conferences are not looking out for the best part of the sport. They're looking out for themselves because that's what their job is to do. And that's why I think a lot, that's why you and I were surprised 
and maybe pleased to see Charlie Baker put something forward at the NCAA level because it's the only way they're going to stick together is if the NCAA steps forward on something like that because the commissioners, the conferences are not going to do it. We've seen them tear the sport apart for the last three years. So we can wish that that the Power Five or Power Four or whoever just kind of do their own thing and do it like that, but it is going to be really, really hard. They don't want to do it. They don't want to pay players. And so... Uh, Chip Kelly was right a lot about a lot right about a lot of that stuff. It's just not nearly that easy, and I think we all wish that it was. I agree, and so like the the reason I put this in the rocks is just because there is so there's angst from coaches and from administrators about the state of college sports. There's all the reasons we just outlined about you know why people don't work together or what would make things difficult, even from the antitrust standpoint. So there's just a lot of that, a lot of that frustration and not a lot of necessarily answers that exist right now. So we'll continue to cover that. The big picture stuff, I think, is very interesting to both of us. It's kind of like living through history as it's happening with an entity that is being forced to change uh, right in front of our eyes. So we will wrap things up here, as we always do, with a last call. We rant. We rave, uh, we cheers, we jeers. It can be positive. It can be just something you need to get off your chest. Um, Chris, I'm going to let you go first here with the first last call. The floor is yours. I don't know if it's a, it's, if it's a cheers or a jeers. I guess a cheers because Nick Saban, that sneaky guy, hiring former Michigan linebackers coach George Hilo to his staff right now before they play Michigan in the Rose Bowl semifinal game. He may be elevated to linebackers coach because Coleman Hutzler is leaving for Mississippi State, but I don't know if we know that for sure. He he didn't have to bring him in now to do that. And this move, I saw a lot of Michigan fans being like, hey, how, how, you know, how can sign stealing be illegal or whatever, what, what Michigan did, but Nick Saban can hire a Alabama or a former Michigan coach. Well, I mean, that's just, that's employment. That's, that is not new. NFL teams bring in players all the time in preseason camp to learn what they know. Bobby Petrino one time said that Nick Saban is the king of interviewing coaches that he has no intention of hiring just so he can learn how they do things. And that is the first thing that came to mind when I saw Nick Saban hiring a former Michigan linebackers coach. He spent 21 and 22 uh, on the Michigan staff. He was let go after last season, despite having a year left on his contract, uh, linebacker play at Michigan was not great. Uh, so he was on the market. And so, yes, I am sure Nick Saban is getting everything he can from George Hilo to learn about how Michigan runs things on defense. And that is just a fun little side note storyline going into this game that college football coaches go through every possible stone that they turn over to find every little bit of information. And Nick Saban just went and hired a former Michigan coach before they played Michigan. And I thought that was pretty funny. It is. It is. It's a fun storyline to track as well, especially coming out of the sign ceiling scandal that has engulfed so much of the season about that information and about just the long layoff, right? And everyone's immediate reaction to seeing that draw was, oh, Saban with a month to go. And, you know, we saw a lot of that reflected in the anonymous scouts that Bruce put together this week um, of Michigan and Alabama. A lot of deference for the way that Nick Saban prepares these teams. 
Uh, so I'm sure getting information from Michigan directly uh, will will help as well. My last call today is a bit of a rant. Um, and I am. Yeah, I'm ready for this. Um, so a couple things happened on Tuesday that bothered me. They were connected. So Sporting News announced that Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark were their sports people of the year. And first of all, they had this like graphic that was like half of each of their face. It was like black and white and like really like it looked like the making of murder type graphics, like anything on true crime. It looked like a true crime thing. Yeah. Yeah, it totally did. Like it looks like you would like it looked like a documentary series like on Netflix. And so it took a second to realize a that this was a positive piece of news. (laughs) And also what it was. I mean, literally, like I saw, I think on three or somebody else just made a graphic to like, like echo this, like to say that Sporting News did this. And they just put a normal photo of Caitlin Clark and a normal photo of Angel Reese together. Like I was like, wow, look at that. Look at what Photoshop can allow you to do. That was super normal and easy. So first of all, that was weird. But then the reaction to this bothered me so much, Chris. Now, some of it was the idea that it's a split award, that there's sports people. There were were a lot of people being like, no, it should have just been one of them. Should have been Angel Reese because she beat Caitlin Clark head to head or something like that, right? And like that misses the point. The point was that together, the two of them elevated the sport. Like we watched women's college basketball change. We watched it take a giant leap forward. I was there in Dallas for the final four and you knew it was a thing. And part of the reason that a big part of the reason it was a thing was because South Carolina was trying to go for back-to-back championships and they were undefeated. And then another huge part of it was that Caitlin Clark was there and she was a huge draw and people were setting attendance records and away teams were setting attendance records to see her because she was phenomenal to watch. She was must-see TV. She won player of the year awards, all sorts of stuff. And then LSU and Kim Mulkey and this team and Angel Reese and these transfers. And then the way the game ended and all of that combined for a final four that broke a ton of viewership records and made Angel Reese also a household name because of the way LSU won, because of the, you know, you can't see me in the way that the game ended, the, the, the taunting, the ring yet pointing at her ring the same way Joe Burrow did all of that elevated the sport and we talked about it differently. It was on talk radio for weeks because of it, because of the way the game ended, because of the two of them and the the way that they drew people in both players came out of that household names. It was, it should be a shared award. Like my reaction to seeing SI put Deion Sanders as their sportsman of the year was that it should have been Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark because together they represent what we saw for women's basketball and the leap that it took. And it took both of them. You can't just pick the the winner of that game because the reason that all those people watched that game were because they were invested in Caitlin Clark as well. So it's it they're yin and yang. They they go together. Um, so that was really bothersome, and I am just so tired of that. Like you are able to celebrate multiple people. You do not have to make this about one or the other, especially with those two. And so many people tried to do that in the aftermath of that game. When Caitlin Clark mm-hmm. was not bothered by yep. the taunting, by the, all that stuff, because she's a trash talker. They both are. They were both fine with it. And everyone tried to make it something it wasn't. And now they're trying to do that again about them sharing an award, which again is meant to symbolize where the sport is right now and where it went because those two played 
in that championship game. So that bothers me so much. And I'm just so tired of this. It's like a media literacy thing, but also people coming in with preconceived notions or trying to take shots or make something a competition that really isn't about that. It, it, um, it, this is, it's, it's not the same as Jill Biden thinking about inviting both teams to the white house after the game. That was ridiculous. I think we all agreed on that. I can understand why LSU people yes. were annoyed I would be by furious. That. Yeah. That, that yes. is something that, that, was, the that winning was literally about team, the, yeah, the winning yes. team does something and that yes. is about who won the game. Yes. No, you're right. I mean, like it was the first time I could remember the women's tournament taking on a becoming just a cultural thing that we were all watching. And Caitlin Clark was the driving force behind that because she's a ridiculously good player. And then you get to this championship game and Angel Reese is a really good player. And then she does her taunt at the end of the game, which again, Caitlin Clark was fine with. But it cre- it was like the first time we talked about women's sports like that on talk radio. And which is good. Like like, like we would a good. men's championship game. Exactly. Yeah. It was a it was a it was a faux, not really controversy that we just kind of people just kind of made into a controversy, which is yeah. that's that's like it's that's healthy. a positive step forward yes. for to yes. talk about women's basketball that way. So that's why they were all involved in that. And Angel Reese has obviously go, you know, won a lot of awards and done a lot of stuff. And by the way, on this note, uh, I'm going to plug you real quick. Your column about this, about LSU, about Iowa, about these two women is on the Athletics Best of 2023 uh put together thing we have on the website at the athletic.com. So check that out. You wrote a great column about it as well. So that is great. Also, because you mentioned Caitlin Clark doing the, you can't see me. That is a John Cena thing. That is a pro wrestling thing. So I was not going to get out of here without. Okay. All right. I think, I think that means that it's time to wrap up this week's episode. Um, by the way, also, uh, the best of pieces are all unlocked. So if you didn't read that story, back then um, or want to read anything else. Maybe you didn't have a subscription or don't right now. You can read all of that on the athletics website. Um, but of course it's a great time to get a gift subscription, which you can get one or two years on the athletic right now, uh, which is a great idea for anyone who needs a holiday gift super last minute because we're running out of time and you're not going to be able to ship something in time. So the athletic.com slash gift sale, that will be your saving grace. Um, speaking of grace, we are thankful Thankful for all of you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for spending a little bit of your holiday week with us. Thank you for tuning in to Power Hour. Chris and I really enjoy getting to do that this each week. And the best way to support us is to follow the Until Saturday podcast feed wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll be notified when there's new episodes up. We always appreciate five-star ratings and reviews. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Uh, And the Until Saturday newsletter, we've also got some special crossover content with Max and Sam coming your way next week. So be on the lookout for that. But in the meantime, happy holidays. And for Chris Vanini, I'm Nicole Auerbach. Thanks for listening. Mm